Section 16 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 7. The Civil War, Battle of Pharsalia, Death of Pompeius, Death of Cato, Part 3. We can hardly suppose that the great warrior and statesman allowed himself to be drawn into this perilous adventure by the charm as has been commonly reported of cleopatra's beauty and accomplishments more probably he had fixed his eye on the treasures of alexandria the wealthiest city of the ancient world to furnish him with the means he so much required while he firmly abstained from the usual resource of plunder and confiscation when at last his fortune extricated him from the struggle he allowed himself indeed to remain three months longer to complete the advantage he had gained as long as the pompeians were still scattered he lost little by postponing the prosecution of the war against them he might even wish the disheartened remnant to gather head again that he might once more strike them down at a blow meanwhile he made a campaign against pharnaces the son of mithridates who had profited by the general confusion to attack deiodorus and ariobarzanes these eastern kings had been enrolled as allies of pompeius but they were dependents of the republic also and as such caesar now undertook to defend them again perhaps he was in want of money the assailant was easily defeated in the battle of zela so speedily indeed that the victor according to one story could announce his success to the senate in the three words weeny weedy weeki i came i saw i conquered after regulating with all dispatch the affairs of the east he hastened back to italy where his presence began to be required the measures which the dictator had enacted for the adjustment of debts could not be universally acceptable many other causes of discontent were rife in the city and throughout italy caelius a clever intriguer who like curio before him had deceived even cicero by his pretensions to patriotism excited disturbance at rome the consul servilius acting with firmness caused him to be expelled from the senate and declared incapable of public office thereupon he joined himself with milo who had crept out of his place of banishment and had armed his numerous gladiators in the south of italy and the two together raised a tumultuary force of outlaws and banditti the sedition however was promptly suppressed and both its leaders perished it required a strong hand to maintain a secure and settled government amidst the perils which threatened it from within and from without doubtless the attachment of the citizens to caesar was confirmed by the ferocious menaces of the pompeians which still reached them from a distance even the victory of pharsalia could hardly avail to reassure them while the conqueror was still plunging farther into the remote east and the military forces of his enemy supported by their powerful navy were still accumulating in his rear nevertheless his adherents removed the images of pompeius and sulla from the forum and his secret enemies were controlled by spies and required to join every demonstration of the general satisfaction 
Then came the news of the death of Pompeius, attested by the exhibition of his ring to the citizens. Friends and enemies now combined to flatter the irresistible conqueror. Decrees were issued investing him with unlimited power to raise men and means for the suppression of the Republicans, who were again making head in Africa. In October B.C. 48, Caesar was created in his absence dictator by the Senate for the second time, while for the satisfaction of the people, the powers of the tribunate were decreed to him for life. He appointed Marcus Antonius his master of the horse and commandant in the city. Brave but violent and dissolute, Antonius lacked both sustained vigor and prudence. Sinister rumors began to circulate. Caesar was in peril at Alexandria. Sedition raised her head, and Antonius shrank from the risk of failure in attacking it. Disturbances were excited by Cornelius Dalabella, a weak profligate, burdened with debts, a son-in-law of Cicero, who, like Caelius, raised the terrible cry of new tables, or an extinction of debts. Antonius summoned courage to suppress the tumult, but not till Dolabella had personally affronted him. The demagogue had got himself adopted into a plebeian house in order to obtain the tribuneship, and he was allowed to enjoy the legal inviolability with which the office invested him. In September, B.C. 47, Caesar returned to Rome, and at once all men and all factions quailed before him. The traditions of the civil wars pointed to a barbarous proscription, but the clemency of Caesar was a star of hope to the citizens, and they were not disappointed in it. He was satisfied at least with seizing on the estates of the men who were still in arms against him, and with putting up to public sale the property of his great rival. The dictator remained only three months in Rome. He appointed consuls for the closing period of the year, and designated himself with Aemilius Lepidus for the year next ensuing. He caused himself to be again created dictator. The financial crisis had not yet passed, and doubtless a firm hand was required with competent powers to carry the commonwealth through it. He loaded his partisans with offices and honors, and sated the populace with largesses. This lavish expenditure of money seems to have been his chief means of government. But when his soldiers demanded the fulfillment of his golden promises, and his own favorite tenth legion broke into mutiny, he sternly refused concession. Calling the soldiers together in the Compass Martius, he confronted them unattended, mounted his tribunal, and demanded the statement of their grievances. At the sight of their redoubted general their hearts failed, their voices faltered. They could only plead piteously for their discharge. I discharge you, citizens, replied the imperator. The effect of this last simple word was magical. To the fierce and haughty soldier the peaceful title of citizen seemed a degradation. He entreated to be restored to his standards and offered to submit to military punishment. This striking anecdote is often cited to show the military pride of the great nation of warriors, but it testifies more particularly 
to the effect of the long period of warfare to which the soldier had now been so commonly subjected and to the scorn which the professional swordsman too often feels elsewhere than in rome for the name and character of civilian the veterans of camillus of scipio perhaps even of marius would not have disdained to be addressed as roman citizens thus reassured of the force and temper of the weapon he wielded caesar hastened away to crush the gathering of his enemies assembled in the province of africa the defeated host had been scattered at pharsalia in many directions but the largest division of the fugitives had made its way to Dyrrachium, and had there taken breath to concert its further movements cato to whom the command was offered waived it in favour of cicero the consular and the proconsul but the orator declined to engage further in a struggle which he regarded as hopeless and withdrew sorrowfully into italy gnaeus the violent son of pompeius would have laid hands upon him and he was glad to throw himself at last on caesar's clemency thereupon scipio assumed the command and carried the main body to utica cato at the head of another division skirted the coasts of greece and asia picking up some fleeing adherents of the cause he followed in the track of pompeius but when informed of his chief's assassination he landed on the shore of libya and demanded admission into cyrene the natives shut their gate but cato respected their fears and refrained from chastising them anxious now to effect a junction with scipio he coasted westward as far as the lesser Sirtis, and then plunged with his little army into the sandy desert the march through this torrid and trackless region occupied seven days and was celebrated as an act of chivalrous endurance which might raise the character of cato above that of many victorious and triumphant imperators the object of undertaking it is hard to comprehend but in this as in many other details of roman military history we must allow for our imperfect knowledge of the means available for the operations in hand on joining the bulk of the republican forces in the roman province cato was indignant at the position of his colleagues in command scipio had sought the aid of juba king of numidia an ally and hitherto a dependent of the republic but this prince had seized the opportunity to exalt his own importance and presumed on the large resources he could bring as well as on his recent services to the cause in his defeat of curio to take the first place in the republican councils cato was glad to escape from this humiliation by accepting a local command at utica the chief place in the province and the principal port for communications with italy nor were his friends less willing to be relieved from his importunate susceptibilities for a time perhaps they felt themselves secure from caesar's pursuit for caesar was still deficient in naval resources they forgot the loss of their great army and their still greater chief and flattered themselves that victory was still in their hands labienus the renegade had now become their chief military adviser while scipio was surrounded by Afranius, petraeus the sons of pompeius and other leaders of the party 
all abundantly confident in themselves and loud in denunciation of their enemy but their military capacity was slender of political vision they had none at all such was the posture of affairs in the republican camp when caesar suddenly appeared off the coast with the small division of his troops for which he could secure means of transport having evaded the vigilance of scipio's fleet he summoned the leaders of the force at adrumitum to surrender to caesar the imperator they replied there is no imperator here but scipio and put his herald to death as a deserter the dictator sailed on to leptis and landing there with the good will of the inhabitants awaited further succours there he was menaced by scipio and labienus who frequently led the opposing cavalry flung bitter taunts at the veterans whom he had so often led to victory but caesar maintained himself quietly within his entrenchments till he could move forward with five legions while by making an alliance with the mauritanians he was enabled to drive away juba to the defence of his own capital scipio had no spirit to combat him alone the republican force drew off caesar advanced and was rapidly gaining the upper hand after a time juba rejoined his friends and made them feel that they had become more than ever dependent upon him he forbade scipio to wear the imperator's purple cloak which pertained he said to kings only at last on april fourth the armies met on the field of thapsus some of caesar's troops were fresh levies and he was not sure of their steadiness but the impetuosity of the redoubted tenth legion forced on the battle and carried the imperator along with it caesar invoked his wonted good fortune and spurring his horse took the lead of his battalions the combat was soon decided the numidian elephants turned upon the ranks which they were placed to cover the native cavalry dismayed at the loss of their accustomed support hastened to abandon the field scipio's legions made little resistance separated from their fleeing officers they begged for quarter but a frightful massacre was made of them which caesar was unable to control scipio escaping to the coast was taken and slain juba and petraeus fled together and sought refuge in zama but the numidians refused shelter to their tyrant and his companion thus repulsed the fugitives first ate and drank together then in the spirit of barbarian gladiators challenged each other to mortal combat petraeus was first to fall in the duel juba threw himself on his own sword cato was now left to defend himself alone in africa his own course had been long decided but he allowed his followers to choose for themselves between submission or flight or resistance to the utmost the senators and knights despairing it is said of pardon would have held out but the traders and men of peace long settled in utica had little to fear from yielding and insisted on a timely surrender cato closed all the gates except that which opened upon the port and urged his associates to take to the sea with his son and a few devoted friends who refused to leave him he sat down to supper on the eve of caesar's arrival he discoursed with more than his usual fervour on the highest themes of philosophy 
especially on the generous paradox of the Stoics, that the good man alone is free, and all the bad are slaves. Meanwhile the embarkation was proceeding. Cato sent repeatedly to inquire who had already put to sea, and what were the prospects of the voyage. Retiring to his chamber, he took up the dialogue on the soul in which Plato has recorded his dying master's last longing for immortality. Looking up, he observed that his sword had been removed. He sent for his friends, rebuked them for their unworthy precaution, as if he said he might not at any time kill himself by dashing his head against the wall, or merely by holding his breath reassured perhaps for a moment by the calmness of his demeanour they restored him his weapon and at his earnest desire left him once more alone at midnight he inquired again about the departure of his followers the last vessel it was replied was just leaving the quay he then threw himself on his couch but when all was quiet he seized his sword and thrust it into his body the blow was not immediately mortal, and he rolled groaning on the floor. His attendants rushed in, a surgeon sewed up the gash. But on coming to himself he repulsed his disconsolate friends, and tearing open the wound, expired with the same dogged resolution which through life had distinguished him. There is something so Roman, and at the same time so peculiar, in the character of this hero of ancient history, that a few words may well be bestowed on a special notice of it. Cato of Utica, as he is commonly called, to distinguish him from his great-grandfather, Cato the Kensor, inherited from his ancestor the rugged disposition of the Sabine highlanders. He was naturally harsh in temper, quaint in humour, strict in the discharge of duties interpreted in a narrow sense, enduring much himself, and exacting no less of others. The elder Cato had struggled through life resisting the influence of Grecian ideas which he deemed wholly pernicious, though in his latest years he had deigned at last to make himself acquainted with the Greek language. His descendant, after the lapse of a century, had yielded altogether to the new lights which had pervaded his country, and had received at least the outward polish of the literature and philosophy of the schools. The time had in fact just arrived when the more sensitive and sanguine spirits at Rome were beginning to throw off the blind devotion of a ruder age to mere form and ceremonial, and look into their own hearts for the moral resources which had become necessary to them. Cato himself was a religious enthusiast, but he was, in Roman phrase, full of the God within his own breast, and retained no external object of belief. From the time of Plato, at least, the philosophers of Greece had taught men to look into their own hearts for the rule of spiritual life. It was but recently that this subjective idea of religion had been introduced into Rome, where it met with little intelligent acceptance. For the most part, those among the Romans, who most readily rejected the creed of antiquity, cast themselves on the tenets of the Epicureans, which were, in fact, a mere negation of religion altogether. Those who, like Cato, embraced the system of the Stoics, were even more rigid and pedantic in their notions than their masters, 
and of these none was more eminent for the strictness of his rule and his devotion to his principle than the philosophic statesman who gave up his life for his faith at Utica. Cato died for his religion as much as any martyr of the heathen or the Christian world, for he held it as a religious duty to maintain the constitution of his country, but the error or vice of his system was that he acknowledged no duty to any being exterior to himself, to whom he owed his existence, and for whom he was bound to support it. According to the severe logic of his false philosophy, when the Republic had perished, his own work, though left undone, was, as far as he was concerned, practically finished. There was now no further place for him in life. Wherefore he bowed to his destiny and quitted it without a murmur. The melancholy result of this error was that the pupils of Cato's school elevated it into a principle, and Seneca and others both defended and followed it. End of section 16